Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and this is the second part of my conversation with Ben Francis in regard to his very compelling new book entitled Careful the Spell You Cast, How Stephen Sondheim Extended the Range of the Broadway Musical. If you missed part one, you may want to catch up with that episode before listening to this one. As always, this episode is made possible in part through the generous support of our Broadway Nation Patron Club members, including producer-level patrons Steve and Paula Reynolds. If you would like to help support the work of this podcast, I'll have information at the end of the episode about how you too can become a patron. Here we go. So we were talking about Sweeney Todd, which leads us to the next chapter, which is about Hal Prince, who, of course, mm-hmm. is the only person who's not a writer in your group of collaborators. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about that. Why is he rate a chapter, even though everybody else is a principal creator? And some people would say the director is an interpretive artist. But that probably is not true in Hal Prince's case. I don't, I don't think it was. It's, it's interesting that both Sondheim and Prince had absorbed a lot of European models, but also brought Broadway. Prince had learned his job through working with George Abbott. And Abbott was, you know, straight down the line Broadway man, did musicals, did farces. In an essay I wrote about the Shakespearean musical, how Prince had quoted George Abbott as saying, well, you know, Shakespeare was just a smart theatre man. Play the guts, not the fancy verse. Like he was just a rootin' tootin' old boy, you know, <laughs> shooting up the Malamute saloon. Abbott was somebody who thought, you light it, you make it clear, you stage it. You don't fanny around with interpretation or, you know, sort of motivation. You put it on. You can learn a lot from people like that because they have technical know-how. But Prince learnt from that, but also wanted to do something that connected back to the world. Cabaret. And Candor and Ebb said that he had a lot to do with the way Cabaret was structured. So you actually had the Kit Kat Club and Sally Bowles' sort of private life sort of balanced. So it became more abstract. The term that got used, actually, Prince and Sondheim both got fed up with, was concept musical. You started with a metaphor, like you've got the collapsed theatre in Follies, you've got this sort of blank stage with backdrops of New York for company. You've got something that steps back from just a sort of representational view, but is more abstract, is more clearly about the idea behind the show. Where the idea is more important than the story itself. Yes, in a way. Or, I mean, the idea sort of is the story. I mean, he was influenced by Meyerhold, much more than by Brecht. Both Sondheim and Prince weren't very keen on Brecht. Prince said, well, you know, Brecht fills the stage white lights. I like shadows. Breck was about sort of telling you what was wrong with the world, whereas Prince, he wanted to suggest things. Again, he said the metaphor is there. I mean, like he had this huge factory for Sweeney Todd. And Sondheim said that affected how I wrote the songs. The whole thing was about the industrial age and how people get ground down. That kind of grinding rhythm, I think, affected the way that Sondheim wrote the songs. That was it. I mean, the thing was they often worked together. It wasn't that Sondheim would turn up with a script and Prince would put it on. They would discuss things. I mean, it was Prince's idea to actually do company and Sondheim was going oh well I'm not sure well I'll think about it which actually is quite often the case is that Sondheim himself might be unsure about something it was Goldman who suggested doing Follies 
and then he'd be sort of persuaded into it. Another thing to remember is that Sondheim said that Hal was the ironist and I was the romantic, which is why our collaboration worked so well. You look at a lot of Prince's shows, it's like Fawcett, not as <laughs> black as that. They were saying, well, you know, showbiz, but that's kind of propping up something that's false, like in Cabaret, they're not looking at the world. And again, he wanted to draw explicit parallels of the civil rights movement. I think with Prince, he was aware of how things didn't work out in the way that you want them to. I think that, again, that influenced Sondheim a lot. They kind of, they already agreed on that. Yeah, it was Prince who managed to envisage it in stage terms. Whereas, I mean, before that, I mean, Gypsy's fairly straightforward. West Side, funny thing is Vaudeville, directed by George Abbott, who Sondheim didn't actually think was, a, I mean, he thought he was okay, but he wasn't particularly impressed with him as a director. But Yeah, I've heard then, some very nasty things he's been quoted as saying about George Abbott. Abbott was, again, very sort of, it was pure entertainment. You didn't worry about what the world was like. Whereas Prince was, again, more influenced by also European cinema, I think. I mean, he in his book, There's Contradictions and then Sense of Occasion, he talks about Eight and a Half being an influence on Follies. In Eight and a Half, you've got the main character who's a bit like Ben. He's kind of somebody with kind of creative impotence. You're sort of always going between his memories, his fantasies, and the reality of what's happening now. And sometimes he's sort of the edges are blurred. You're not quite sure whether something is reality or fantasy. And it doesn't matter. And I think that was important to Sondheim and to Prince, that what was actually happening wasn't so important as what was happening inside the character. It was about states of mind rather than events. I mean, that's a bit of an artificial distinction, but it sort of moved towards that. And also a sense of alienation, which was quite common in even in popular music. You know, like there's the Beatles, A Day in the Life, or The Sound of Silence of Simon and Garfunkel. I mean, the pop singers, instead of just singing about falling in love, they were singing about, you know, feeling alienated and lost in a hostile world. It was something that was sort of in the air. All part of that post-Vietnam, post-Watergate Yeah, that's era. it. Suddenly, you know, you're not the good guy, you're not the heel, or rather you were the heel at that point in Vietnam. That's it. I mean, in Follies, there's no mention of Vietnam, no mention of race riots or anything, but there's just this sense that sort of somehow America is not the good guy anymore. It's not Audie Murphy. You know, it's not standing up and doing the right thing. They've gone completely wrong. And then, of course, the whole specter of Nixon, which just kind of gets mentioned in Merrily. Again, they rejected that kind of, I was going to say optimism, isn't it? but it's that kind kind of complacency. Blind optimism. Yeah, that kind of, you know, that sense that sort of, we're okay in America. It was more sort of, well, let's be a bit more responsible and just do what we should be doing. And they're saying to Broadway, let's look at the world we're in. Another hundred people just got off of the train and came up through the ground pile. Another hundred people just got off of the bus and are looking around at another hundred people who got off of the plane and are looking at us who got off of the train and the plane and the bus maybe yesterday the New York of companies. It's exciting, but it's also, you know, the rusty trees with the battered barks, people missing each other, and, you know, another hundred people just got off of the train. There's this sense of alienation. As I say, I compare it to the last seven minutes of uh, Leclis by Antonioni. That's set in Milan, but there again, you've got, you know, Monica Vitti and Alain Delon are these lovers, but then they arrange to meet and they don't meet. And then you've got people, it just, just occurred to me, it's a little bit like the end of Evening Primrose and that you think you see them alive and have escaped. And then you realise that actually it's two other people. Kind of similar moment like that in Leclis. You think it's them, in fact, it's not. And it's just seven minutes of sort of total strangers walking past. It's the city of strangers, some come to work, some to play.
again, I think both Prince and Sondheim responded to that. It was Prince who managed to put that in theatrical terms. And that's why Prince was never happy with his own work for Merrily, because he never really came up with a overarching metaphor. I mean, he had this kind of white bleached set, which perhaps you could get away with now. But, you know, people thought, 1981, you know, I'm I'm paying $40 for a seat and I see a blank stage. What the hell is going on? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I want my money's worth, you know. I saw that production. I saw the final performance of Merrily. And I think... In hindsight, we probably would have accepted that, except it was clear that he didn't have a vision. It was clear that why are we doing the show in this way was not, I wouldn't have articulated it at the time. The whole show was enervating. It just felt like until the last 20 minutes, still opening doors, the show suddenly took off. And part of that was the cast was finally the right age to be playing the characters. But it also was just somehow there was some ebullience about that part of the show. And I think it's really more of a sense a purpose that was clear then that was not clear for the previous two hours of the show. I really like that show. I think it, I think it works now. I agree and with it's you. It's a bit heavy-handed. It does rather labour the point. But again, because so many people missing it first time, they kept telling you, sort of, this man is selling out. This man is selling out. <laughs> we get it, we get it. People didn't at first. They thought, well, who, who cares about him? You're exactly right. That was not clear that we were supposed to focus on that in that original production. And I don't know whether it's because everything was so amorphous it's hard even to remember exactly what the show was, but I remember the feelings that I had sitting there just being sort of like, oh my God, why is the show not any good? It's all my heroes doing it, and yet it's not working. Let's continue through our list. This is fun. Shevlov, Bert Shevlov. Gods of the theater, smile on us. You who sit up there, stern in judgment, smile on us. You who look down on actors. And who doesn't? Bless this yearly festival and smile on us. We offer you song and dance. We offer you rights we and rebels. We offer you gods and we heroes. We offer you shows and insults. We offer you pains and pages, bacchanals and social comment. Bert Shevlov, a name that is probably less talked about, although certainly was a significant figure in many things, but especially in Broadway musicals. What's the defining aspects of their collaboration? Well, I, I call the chapter Nothing That's Grim. I mean, that was it. Shevlov was a comedy writer, wrote for Red Buttons and uh, directed some shows, Art Carney. I mean, Larry Gelbart, they collaborated on the book for uh, Funny Thing. I mean, that was it. I mean, Funny Thing, it's a nostalgic show for vaudeville and also for burlesque. I mean, it's quite a clean kind of burlesque it's not a strip the women kind of come on and do a bump and grind but they don't actually sort of strip it's a family friendly burlesque it's saucy a body. I mean, it's a body yeah. yes yeah i mean there's never really been an american equivalent of the carry-on movies that's, that, yeah. that's the kind of, as close as it gets i think yeah and that's what it was and also the frogs which is a bit later which is the show that he and Shevlov did from the play by aristophanes they both have classical antecedents but neither of them are particularly serious i mean the frogs its message ironically it's kind of anti-didactic it's saying you can't lecture an audience you have to make them feel things which i'd go along with generally but also a funny thing it's actually that it's celebrating tattiness i mean there's a, a sort of little throwaway gag in comedy tonight hundreds of actors out of sight it's a show that can work in a like community center you're making a joke about how it's not a great sort of hollywood spectacular it's a hollywood spectacular but you can't actually see it a bit because we can't afford it I think that's it. I mean, Shevlov did a revised version of No No Nanette, which is a big hit in the 70s. He was a professional comedy writer, sort of slick and funny, not somebody who had any particular interest in sort of analysing why the world was what it was. 
but clearly obsessed with early forms of theater. So in some ways, I sort of look at uh, Funny Thing Happened on the Way of the Forum as something that's showing us you don't need anything mm. to have an effective show. Theater, at its essence, is a bare stage. I mean, in a way, it sort of ties into, uh, it's maybe stretching it, but ties into Peter Brook in a way that that sense of let's go back to the basics here. Yeah, I think it's almost like taking the mickey out of spectacle. I mean, Follies is a kind of ironic spectacle. It's like the spectacle has collapsed. Whereas here, if she plays Medea later this week, it's like sort of, you know, and please come and see and, and tell all your friends this rather desperate touring company one step ahead of the sheriff, just to, trying to get people to come in and see their shows. And it's it's about acting and how actors who live tenuous lives trying to raise a smile. Yeah, it's so interesting because it's nostalgic for the vaudeville era of their parents or their youth of Shevloff and, and Sondheim. I guess they were both born in the 20s, probably. So it's this distant memory of what came before them, but it's really a distant memory of a thousand years ago as well, of 2,000 years ago. Something familiar, something peculiar, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. Something appealing, something appalling, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. Nothing with kings, nothing with crowns. Bring on the lovers, liars, and clowns. Old situations, new complications. Nothing portentous or polite. Tragedy tomorrow, comedy tonight. Don't go away. Ben Francis and I will be right back after this quick break. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factors' menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make everyday delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. With no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com BN50 as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today! Let's talk about the Goldman-Sontime collaborations. Goldman was rather a better-known writer, actually, than some of the others, um, because he'd had a hit on Broadway with Lion in Winter. A giant hit. I mean, a big hit 
play and movie. Right in the book, I realized, look at Lionel Winter, Nicholas and Alexandra, and Robin and Marion. They're all by him and screenplays by him. And they either end on departure or death of the romantic couple. Nicholas and Alexandra and Robin and Marion, they all die. That is what happens in Evening Primrose. And in Lion and Winter, they go. They just say goodbye, having not reconciled to each other or anyone at all. And in Follies, I mean, they've kind of reconciled, so it's a bit more upbeat. But they're going and they're not going to come back. Goldman rather seemed to like the legendary past. I know you also wrote a play about Tolstoy, Tolstoy's last days. This sort of the sunset, the end of things. And that's what appealed to him, a sort of melancholy and also this sense that whatever you do in the world, it probably won't work. But you do it anyway to kind of assert yourself, or kind of assert some kind of human dignity, even in the face of hopelessness. That ties into the Ziegfeld girls in a way, why he's attracted to that subject matter, this faded past. I like the way that, you know, that it doesn't mock the girls. They come on their old sashes from the years and they're singing beautiful girls. And it's not mocking them, they're remembering their past. It doesn't belittle them for what they were. One of the things that influenced it was that Elliot Elephason, I probably mispronounced that, picture of Gloria Swanson standing in a collapsed theatre. And that idea of, you know, the dream is over. And yet also, you know, daylight is coming. But even in that picture, which I think sometimes people miss when they analyze it, is that she looks fabulous. And yeah. we <laughs> admire, again, her moxie to be standing there and defying the fact mm. that the theatre has fallen down. Well, that's it. Yes. I mean, she's like, she's saying, I'm still here. Uh, exactly. <laughs> that is, I'm still here in a nutshell. Good times, bum times. I've seen them all, and my dear, I'm still here. Plush velvet sometimes, sometimes just pretzels and beer. But I'm here. I've stuffed the dailies in my shoes, strummed ukuleles, sung the blues, seen all my dreams disappear. But I'm here. There is a sense of, you know, whatever life throws at you, we can go on. You know, you can survive. I mean, I'm still here as, you know, I mean, she was a drunk, a bit on pills and accused of being a communist, which, of course, could have completely ruined her career. It ruined a lot of careers. That's it. It's just that determination to carry on is so important. I think, again, that is all through Sondheim's work. You were talking earlier about dreams. She sings, seen all your dreams disappear, but I'm here. That's right, yeah. And we're celebrating her. Sondheim is celebrating her. It's a triumphant song. Well, again, yes, ambivalent, but yes, she isn't defeated. In fact, none of them are really, except, well, possibly Sally. And again, that's ambivalent. She realises there's no Ben for her. I mean, you can play it that she's just completely destroyed, uh, which I think Imelda Staunton did when it was at the National. But you can also play it that she's actually got somewhere. I mean, even Ben, who is such a phony, but he's had the kind of comparative dignity of a breakdown and he admits he needs Phyllis. And that's it. You think she's leaving because she's saying, could I leave you? You know, guess. And then she doesn't. She actually realises that there's some humanity there. I think that's the thing with Goldman. There's a sense that the time has gone by or that somehow looking back at the past is somehow preferable to the present, even though you've probably been defeated. And I think with Follies, there is a sense that a lot of things have gone wrong. With all the songs or with a lot of them, I mean, with Broadway Baby. Again, I mean, that's somebody who just has this dream of being a star and it hasn't happened. That's less 
sort of because the song that the characters sang is not them talking about their life it's not a book song there's still a sense that someday maybe all my dreams will be repaid and no they're not <laughs> you're not going to be a star it's because you know Broadway wasn't really interested in old women right. generally except for a couple of them who could walk down staircases but you know <laughs> generally and the entertainment wasn't interested in old people especially not old women and I think it's Sondheim and Goldman give them their dignity and say well you know, these people have lived notice them you talk a lot about in various chapters the Loveland sequence what strikes me with that is Sondheim and Goldman give these four characters a chance to see themselves in the mirror basically to look in the mm-hmm. mirror and of course a mirror is a metaphor in there the only reason to have characters see themselves is to have some kind of realization mm-hmm. that comes from it this sort of epiphany, another thing that occurs in many of these shows. So I actually would disagree with Imelda Staunton, although it was a fantastic performance, that somehow once she's seen herself in Loveland, she has to change. She has to move on. She has to be able to at least somehow be different than what she was when she walked in the door and not just defeated. But it's interesting that ambivalence is part of what appeals to Sondheim to not tie it up with a bow. Yeah, I mean, I think if I was directing it, I would make it that she had at least sort of realize what she's been doing i mean she's put poor buddy through hell you know for 30 years and she's starting to realize that and that you know just being horrible to the people around you but having a dream that you keep to yourself is not good enough you can't treat people that way and being sensitive and kind inside is no good if you're horrible outside I'm making it sound very didactic there, and it's not. But, you know, that is the kind of the undercurrent. I mean, I think that's true of so many creators of shows, is they don't start with a point they want to prove. They start with a character, but just the sort of the way they feel about life comes through naturally. And that epiphany moment, that breakdown moment, as you mentioned, is, again, a recurring theme. And I think Sondheim has even said early on that he wanted to have somebody have a nervous breakdown on stage. Mm -hmm. That was one of his goals. And then he does that in show after show after show. Oh, yeah. Yeah, plenty of them that's it yeah because they can't <laughs> hold it together i mean rose's turn of course is the first one and again she does confront a rather sort of ugly truth that she did it for her she didn't do it for louise and she then at least has some sense of self-awareness after that she yeah. is going to be different afterwards we're not exactly sure how she's going to be different but she's yeah. not going to be the same we don't know whether her and louise will ever really get along but at least i think they have kind of passed the point where they're just going to be at each other's throats all the time and i think she is going to go open that school for kids i always feel like that at the end of gypsy that louise tells her you've always been good with kids the last image is that light going out in her face that sort of she wants something and she hasn't got it and that is really you know it's quite painful you know that image was in those revivals that lawrence did but i don't think that was the last image in the original production i think they walked off arm in arm more like they do in the movie all right yeah well probably i mean seeing it was 1959 you'd be hard pushed i think that was an innovation that they came up with in that Tyne Daly production where she lingers on the stage. And again, I question that. It was very effective. Tyne Daly did it brilliantly. But what's the point of watching this whole story if she doesn't move on at the end of it? And move on is obviously something that Sondheim is interested in. (laughs) (laughs) She could move on and still want to, you know, think uh, if only. But I mean, that's it. It's ambivalent now. All these things you can play different ways. Absolutely. On the next episode of Broadway Nation, Ben Francis and I will continue our conversation about his new book, Careful the Spell You Cast, How Stephen Sondheim Extended the Range of the Broadway Musical. I've slept in shanties, guest of the WPA, but I'm here. 
danced in my scanties. Three bucks a night was the pay. But I'm here. I've stood on bread lines with the best. Watched while the headlines did the rest. In the depression, was I depressed? Nowhere near. I met a big financier. And I'm here. Here's the information about how you can become a patron of Broadway Nation. A donation of just $7 a month will not only keep Broadway Nation rolling along, it will also provide you with exclusive access to the complete unedited versions of many of the interviews that you hear on this podcast. And all patrons will receive special on-air shout-outs and acknowledgments of your vital support for this podcast. To join, simply go to broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech. That's broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech. Or click the link in the show notes to this episode. I've gotten through Herbert and J. Edgar Hoover. Gee, that was one and a half. When you put through Herbert and J. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. I've been through Reno. I've been through Beverly Hills. And I'm here. Rafers and vino rescuers religion and pills. But I'm here. Been called a pink. school that seems clear still someone said she's sincere so I'm here black sable one day next day it goes into hock but I'm here top billing Monday Tuesday you're touring and stop but I'm here
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.